aspects of its significance to us and how to understand it, and on and on. We are grateful that we have this opportunity. And Father, even now as we are uh, working our way through the confession, we pray that you would uh, give us insight and wisdom. Our desire is to honor your word and to examine this document in light of your word and, uh, and then examine our lives in light of your word as well. And so we pray for your blessing on our time and help us to understand well. And, uh, and we pray that you would be honored in this time as well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week I bit off more than I could chew, and so this week I bit off exactly the same amount. <laughs> I'm sure it'll go differently today, right? That's how those things work. There's a great uh, quote that is attributed to Augustine, and um, it's, it's very interesting and thought-provoking, and uh, he probably said it in Latin, and I don't, but in English. The closest I can get, uh, or that I found, is this, that Scripture is like a pool, shallow enough for a child not to drown, yet deep enough for an elephant to swim. And I think that's, uh, there's a lot of wisdom in there. And uh, that addresses the topic that we're discussing today. Uh, I hope everybody has a sheet. There's still some available on, on uh, uh, open spots, on tables and whatnot. But that, that topic is, uh, is important. When we were uh, ministering in Russia, we would talk to people sometimes, and maybe you've had this same conversation with people of different backgrounds, where uh, when you talk about wanting to do a Bible study or want to talk about what the Bible means or what it says, it's a, it's a, it's a book of mystery to them. It's like they don't want to open it because they're afraid of what's in there. They're afraid they can't understand what's in there, that, um, that it's, it's a mystery to normal folks like us, and we need somebody, usually some kind of priest or something like that, to tell us what it means because it's just a mystery to us. It's like, it's like a child whose parent uh, is reading a story to them because the child can't read yet, right? And even in our context in Russia, the accepted Bible of the Orthodox Church is actually in a different language. So, um, Russians don't understand it. It's old Slavonic or something like that. It's a different language. And so it really is a mystery, and just tell me what it says, please. Um, but Augustine's point here in, uh, in his statement is that it's shallow enough for us to wade in. We won't drown. We can jump right in and study it. And we uh, children can jump in, and, and, uh, and our own literal children can jump in and read it, and they won't drown there. And yet, it is deep enough, there are mysteries in it, there are topics in it that, uh, that would warrant our lifetime of study, that if we, uh, when we grow up from childhood and, and, uh, and begin to uh, plumb the depths of these different difficult topics, um, we would never find the bottom like an elephant swimming in that little pool that a child wouldn't drown in. And so that topic uh, of Scripture is, is like that. I think that's a, that's a good image. And so um, our goal today is to work through um, chapter 1, paragraph 7, and paragraph 8 of the Confession. And uh, I've labeled 1-7 there the clarity of Scripture. There's a fancier word, the perspicuity of Scripture, which means pretty much the same thing, that it is understandable to us something that we can comprehend. And so as we look to the confession there and read uh, paragraph 7 uh, on the top of your sheet there, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of ordinary means, may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. All right, so there's a, there's a lot of truth packed in there, but I, I like how it starts off that all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, right? I think we can all say amen to that, but we're, we're trying to get a grip on, on what the paragraph here is saying, and so um, what are some of the parts of Scripture or perhaps doctrines of Scripture that are more difficult to understand than others? There are some difficult places in Scripture, not just the pronunciation of the names, perhaps others. In time, in time stuff, right? 
And so trying to piece together perhaps um, the, the different pictures, images, etc., what's going to be the end time, what that's going to be like, right? That's, that's not crystal clear, is it? No, you could spend, you could spend some time working in that. What are, what are some other topics <clears throat> or parts of the Bible? Yeah. So we get right down to uh, that, that quote there from, uh, from Malachi chapter 1 and trying to understand the nature of, of that statement, how it is, how it can be uh, consistent with God's character, consistent with reality, uh, consistent with all that we know about God and humanity in Scripture. How can it be that, that God loved Jacob but hated Esau? It's a difficult topic, right? That's not one that you just read through it one time and all of a sudden you've got the answer, right? That's going to take some thought. That's, uh, that's not a like plane, right? It's difficult. How about related to that, um, the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, how those things work together. That's not an easy topic. That's not one that, that uh, you know, uh, could just be mentioned in a Sunday school class in a couple of sentences and you'd have that resolved or whatever. It's a difficult topic that'll, um, that will draw you in to think about it more and more uh, through the course of your Christian life, right? What are some other difficult topics? Yeah. 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 That's right. That's right. So, so just by virtue of being in a different time, in a different culture, in a different context, perhaps language and things like that, there are things that were that are said that 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 were probably clear to the first reader, like that, that to us are not, right? And so those, those can be some more difficult things, trying to access that context so that we understand that uh, well, right? Maybe, maybe one other thing. What's one other thing that's, that, that is difficult to understand that is not alike plain or clear to all? Andy. So the Spirit, for, for believers, we have the Spirit of God on the inside of us, but we also have the flesh. Yeah. Right, yeah. So, so I, as a Christian, who ha- I've been declared righteous before God, I have the Spirit of God dwelling in me, I have uh, been made alive in my heart, right? The, the heart of stone has been taken away, the heart of flesh, and yet, what's the deal with this sin I still struggle with, right? That's not going to be answered in a, uh, in a one-paragraph devotional either, right? And so... Uh, that's a topic that, uh, that is going to require us to examine um, a, a little bit more. Uh, so the ne- next question there, and I think we can, we can think about this a little bit. What can make the difficult parts difficult? What can make those difficult parts difficult? I think Donnie brought up a good one there, um, the historical and cultural difference between us in our time and the writer in their time. That's a simple thing, right? That's a, that's a matter of needing to understand more, perhaps more context or perhaps the language or something like that. Maybe that's, a, that's, that's one reason. But what is it that makes uh, the difficult parts difficult? Yeah. 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 So the it, it takes it takes a lot of work to resolve some of these questions, and perhaps we're not really interested in putting in that work, or we initially think we really are, and then we realize no, it actually is work, <laughs> and and we kind of give up uh, give up the hunt, right? Perhaps that. Yeah. So um, that that can make it difficult. Yeah, Rick. Um, the other thing being, our thoughts are not his thoughts. Yeah. Our thoughts are not like his. Yeah. He is not like us. Yeah. So there's, when, when God is telling us things 
from his perspective, when he's describing things that he does or his reasons for doing things or understanding of situations or, uh, or it's, uh, things like that, yeah, to us, we don't think that way. We don't know what he knows. We don't have that perspective. We don't have those kinds of things. Uh, and so it, it can be jarring, right? Um, I think it's the, the concluding chapters of Job are particularly instructive in this regard that Job has... Uh, he, he and his buddies have been talking about Job's situation, which is a very serious and painful situation that Job has been going through. And his friends have come and brought this advice and, and accusations. And they've, they've tried to work through it, trying to understand uh, all this situation that Job has gone through. And in the end, the Lord speaks to him and sets him straight. Job, you, you don't have the faintest idea. You don't, your understanding is so minuscule and so different that uh, God is explaining to Job and to us and to his friends that um, he operates by a different um, metric, perhaps, than, than we do. That he is, is governing the world not based upon the, the way we would govern the world. He does it differently. He's doing something different, right? And so... Um, yeah, so di- difference in understanding there. Not only are we finite, but we think very differently, and our, our, our center, our point of reference is very different than for him. And so uh, that, that when he tells us something, it can catch us off guard uh, like it did Job and his friends. What are some other uh, things that make difficult parts of the Bible difficult? Our independent, individualistic mindset. Yeah. So, so what, what do you mean by that? So we're, I understand the words, but... Yeah. People. And it's all about us. Yeah. And it's not necessarily about community. Right. And so it really isn't about community. Right, right. We are so individualistic that we can't see beyond that. Yeah. And so, so we're related to what you were saying there about us being individualistic. You know, the, the Bible is not primarily an anthropocentric book, a, a book that's centered on mankind. It is theocentric. It's primarily about him, and then it relates us to him. Yes. Oh, okay. It relates us to him, right? And so it is theocentric and talks a lot about us, but it is not man-centered. Oh, and occasionally talks about God. Our world, the way, uh, the way we normally operate is about us. Right? It is about mankind, and we occasionally talk about God, right? Part of the sanctification of the Christian life is is reversing that, right? But, uh, but not only is it um, just that we think about mankind first and then we try and reason up towards God, but in reality, I think about me first. And then I reason out from there. And I, you might be included or might not. And I might or might not actually eventually get to God in my thinking, right? But, but my, uh, the center of my world is so often me. It's not even just man. It's, it's me, right? And so that's a struggle because the center of all reality is not Brennan or even humanity, but it's God himself. And so that's, a, that's a, like a, a shift, like a polarity shift kind of in our understanding of all of reality. And so when God is saying something in Scripture that is built upon the reasoning that God is the most important thing and then working out from there to us, and we who think the other way encounter that statement, encounter that teaching, can be very, very uh, disconcerting perhaps to us, right? And so there's a, there's a different way of thinking that, um, that we've hit on there in, in that regard, right? Yeah, one of, the, one of the things that always bothered me is when uh, you have all these children of Job that were, that were killed. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And that was my big argument, but it, I know they get, you know, heaven is, we know all this, but nevertheless, at that time, I kept thinking, the children are hurt. Don't yes. Don't forget, oh, well, I've, I'll forget about them. That's right. I've got new ones. Now. That's right. <laughs> I'm looking at it from a human yeah. Yeah. viewpoint. Yeah, which is a, which is a legitimate viewpoint. Yeah. It's just not the only viewpoint, yeah. right? Yeah, Debbie. Yeah. And so we tend 
Right. Yeah, and that's a that's a uh, that's an important uh, point to make, right? That we're we're not just dealing with this little thing here, but we have to take into account the broader scope of all of Scripture teaching on that topic, um, which is not only a difficult thing to do, but it's not a natural thing um, that perhaps we've we've been raised to think in those terms, right? And so that that can be a difficult thing. What about this? As far as um, um, what can make a difficult topic difficult in Scripture? is our natural sinful bent on the topic, right? We have a natural sinful preference. And when Scripture comes along and says the contrary, we don't like that, and it confuses us. Now, the problem is not really that it confuses us. (laughs) The problem is we don't like it, so we're working hard to get rid of it. (laughs) That's what we really do, right? Like, like for example... um, you know, the, the, you, you think of the sin of Adam and Eve. You think of the judgment uh, statements that God made uh, upon them and the, the, the curses that came there in the context of Genesis chapter 3. And there's, there's cursing within the family relationship itself, right? And so um, when, we, when we read, um, you know, the, about, about the breakdown in that relationship there, and you can see the breakdown in the relationship when they start accusing one another of the sin and all that kind of stuff, but then you get to the New Testament and you read Paul say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Right? Does a husband like to hear that? Right? Yeah, love my wife. Sure, that's easy. And die for her. Well, <laughs> is that what he really means? Right? Really, like, that, that, the breakdown in the relationship, or you could look at the other side, about a wife submitting to her husband. Right? In the, in the very cursing in the garden, that was one of the issues attacked. That was one of the issues that God said, this is going to be warped now. This, this relationship, the, the harmonious, godly relationship between husband and wife is now there's going to be a change in the nature of, of husband and wife where it's a struggle and there is friction. And so why is it hard to understand those things? It's because we don't want them in our sinful nature, right? So we struggle against those things. Open your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Peter uh, chapter 3. On this topic, generally of difficult passages to understand, this is a very comforting verse uh, for me, particularly as I was preaching through Romans and I was amening Peter here again and again, right? But we get to Second uh, Peter chapter three, verses fifteen and sixteen. So Peter is closing out his second letter and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them and of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So you've got some things going on there. First of all, Peter is calling Paul's writing scripture, for one thing. And secondly, and this is why I wanted to amen him, he says there are some things that are hard to understand in there. And by the way, those are the very things that end up being taken and twisted by these wicked men to their own destruction. The ignorant and unstable is is the way he puts them. And they twist those things. There are things inherently in Scripture that are difficult to understand for various reasons. Next question, how can we gain a better understanding in these difficult areas? Now, I know... There are a couple of different ways to go about this, and I don't know if this is temperament, I don't know if it's, if it's background or what exactly it is, but there are a couple of different ways to answer that. How can we gain a better understanding of these difficult areas? Some would say, well, it's difficult and debated, so set it aside. It must not be important. Oh, no, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. But that, that, is, uh, that is an impulse. That, um, that sometimes we can have or, or that aspects, um, uh, the, the church at various times or in various places has had that, uh, that response that, well, this is difficult and it's debated, so let's table it. Let's just, let's just put it away and deal with the things that are, that are not debated. And I, I, I totally uh, disagree with I, I, I agree with you, uh, Simi, on that topic. I just think it's dangerous to let uh, those things, just because it's difficult for us to understand and perhaps you and I might have a different opinion on that topic does not mean that it is not a part of Holy Scripture given to us, breathed out by God, 
that, uh, that we are to uh, hold to, to understand, to teach, etc. And it's my responsibility, particularly as a preacher, to preach the whole counsel of God, even that difficult part, right? So we don't, we don't get to take that route. So how do we gain a better understanding of these difficult areas? Yeah. Yeah. So you, you can lay a foundation of things that are plain. Like this paragraph has been saying, not everything's plain. Some things are. Not everything's plain. If you take the plain things and, and have them in place rock solid, you can begin to build from there and understand the more difficult things. Yeah. Yes, Andy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and when you look at a, a passage like Ephesians chapter four, you see that play out in other other passages as well. That God has gifted the church in different ways, so that as we function uh, that way, it builds up the body. Right. That that the exercise of me trying to resolve these issues is not just me by myself. It is us corporately and corporately with the history of the church having these discussions uh, together, right? And I think, um, I think Paul, um, in, uh, if you go to 2 Timothy 2.15, there's a, there's a hint there. He doesn't tell us the mechanics of, of how it is to be done. I taught a, a hermeneutics class for, for a year and a half um, and on, on answering these questions that we talked about how it is we can work through, and we picked some easy passages and we picked some very difficult passages trying to work through it. But if you see uh, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, he says, uh, uh, Paul speaking to Timothy here, um, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Some of the other translations talk about the diligence that goes into that, talks uh, they talk about the hard work that goes into that. Do your best. Do your utmost. It takes work. Some things are available like low-hanging fruit in Scripture. They are readily available. And then there are other things that we have to work and we have to be diligent and we have to apply our minds and apply ourselves to those things. And Paul, particularly uh, talking to Timothy here as a pastor, he's instructing him, do your very best. Uh, pour yourself out to this. Give yourself to this, uh, this task of rightly handling the word of truth. Right? It's not easy. It is hard. Yes, Luke. Yeah. Yeah. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we've got access to information, and that's, you know, you think about the amount of information we have access to, we can access it. And like Lou's saying, there are even uh, resources that we can look to for free to see how our forefathers have thought about this topic and how they've worked through it that will help us in regard to that. And really, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a shame that we, we don't take advantage of things like that more often, right? We don't, we don't uh, commit ourselves to it. We ought to be diligent. We ought to work hard in regard to these things. That, yeah, it's hard to understand Scripture. Some things are really simple, and, and our VBS kids can grasp those things. And then there are other things that we will <clears throat> work on for a long time, right? And so Paul would encourage Timothy, would encourage us, be diligent, work hard to understand these things. And so uh, we've talked about some of the things that are difficult. We've talked about those things that are not alike clear unto all. We're going to move on in just a moment and talk about the things that are readily accessible. Rick. Um, James 1, 5. Yeah. Any of you lack wisdom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, so where does, we talked about illumination a couple of weeks ago. Um, where does the, uh, what is the role of prayer and our Bible study and God's illumination 
in these questions. We've, we've talked about um, the, the mechanics a little bit. We've talked about the, the need to work hard to talk about um, some are difficult. Where does, what is the role of prayer in regard to these topics? What is, what is, um, what is that role? Major. Major? Okay, what, what, um, what's going to be the result? So when, when I open the Bible to, pray, or to, to preach, to prepare to preach, to teach, to whatever, um, I open the Bible to study it and see what it says, I go to prayer. I go to the Lord and I, and, I, and I ask Him for help. I ask Him for wisdom, for clarity of understanding. So then what does He do in answer to that prayer? What should I expect from God in answer to that prayer? What is God going to do? He's going to help you understand. He's going to prepare your heart. Yeah. So, and open your heart too. Yes, and, and so when we talked about illumination, the subject of illumination has, has to do with, with me, right? That, that I, and I talked about seeing myself in the story, right? So when I'm, when I'm reading uh, these truths, when I'm reading about, you know, going through Romans chapter 8 and the great encouragement of, um, of this salvation that we have, I can look at that distantly, but, but when, I, when, when I pray and, and God gives me illumination, I see that encouragement for me and that I need it. I begin to understand how it applies to me, what it means to me, right? And so it's a illumination, um, this is not a complete definition, but, but it brings me closer to the text in that regard. Seeing that this text has something to teach me, and I need to be guided and changed by the text, and not the other way around. So illumination plays that role. It does a, there are other things uh, involved as well. But what, what do I expect God to do? First of all, Simi said, uh, changing our hearts, opening our hearts, opening our, our minds um, to understand what God has to say for us. What else can we expect God to do? Okay. Yeah. And so when I pray and I'm thinking about these things, uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, trying to work through that difficulty, right? And I'm praying about that. I'm, I'm submitting my own heart to what God has to say I will believe and think is good. That's an aspect of it, but also that I will think well and think with whole Scripture in mind to solve these problems, right? And so God is going to work in those ways. I, I want to encourage you that illumination is not God giving you the divinely inspired interpretation of what that means. Illumination is not God giving you the divinely inspired interpretation of what that means. Now, that's an important statement because we're a room full of, uh, you know, a few dozen people. And if we were to go to that Malachi 1, 1 through 3 passage, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, and we were to go into our own corners and we were to pray and ask God for, uh, for illumination on this topic and we were to work through it and think through it and we were to expect that God was giving us the divinely inspired interpretation and come back together, how many divinely inspired interpretations, with air quotes, do you think we would have in this room? Yeah, exactly. How, however many dozen or however many people there are, there would be probably one more than that number, right? We would struggle. What does that tell us? That tells us what, what is consistent with what we've been saying about illumination is that God doesn't divinely impart to me the meaning of this passage because I prayed about it. Because you could pray about it and get a different answer. So is God lying? Is God saying two different things are true? Of course not. Right? And so that's part of the reason Paul exhorts Timothy to be diligent. There is hard work that goes into this. And, and I may pray and perhaps ask God for the divinely inspired interpretation. I think I understand what this passage means, and I could be totally wrong, demonstrable, demonstrably from other passages of Scripture that would show me the, the, the clear teaching, right? So you and I need not to be confused about what illumination means. We pray and ask God for wisdom. We pray and ask God for help and for illumination when I'm reading and studying the passage, 
the true interpretation and meaning of that passage will in no way contradict the rest of the teaching of Scripture. And so, I must subject my interpretation to all of Scripture. I must re uh, resist the urge to say, this is what God told me this passage means. Because as soon as I do that, I have planted myself. Here I stand. I can do no other. God told me. And then Rick could come along and say, yeah, but Scripture teaches this thing contrary to that. And this passage over here teaches this thing contrary to that. And now I'm in a tight spot. Because I thought God gave me this, but divinely inspired Scripture is teaching something different. Right? So we need to be humble. We need to be willing to subject our own interpretations and understandings of Scripture to, uh, to the church broadly, to the rest of Scripture for sure. And I need to be very careful not to ascribe my deeply felt interpretation, one that I think is true, one that I think is, is godly, one that I think is uh, consistent with Scripture. I need to resist the urge of putting the label that God told me that. I need to, I need to be very, very careful. Okay, So we have Scripture as our authority, not our interpretation of Scripture as our authority. Right? Now, that's part of the reason it is hard work and we are to give ourselves diligently to these tasks. Humbly. Humbly. Interpreting Scripture, using all of the tools um, as, as best we can with everything in our capacity um, and, and all of that, at the end of the day, we interpret with humility. Now, that doesn't mean we say, well, I think it means this, but I, I could be wrong. You know, I, I just don't really know. Right? That inspires no one, first of all. It's not consistent with Scripture. Second of all, where, where I want to be humble is that, yes, I could be wrong, but you must prove to me that I'm wrong. As a preacher, I stand up and open God's Word and, and give you um, what, 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 what is the result of prayer and study and, and all of the work that went into understanding the meaning of that passage, and I deliver it to you. Could I be wrong? Absolutely. But you're going to have to show me, right? You're, you're, you're going to have to come alongside me and say, well, I did the same work, and I see that because of these reasons, uh, your interpretation is wrong, right? That's what I mean by humility. I don't mean, well, I just, you know, I think, I think Jesus is God, but, you know, really, I could be wrong. Other people have believed different things. That's not humility. That's, that's something entirely different, okay? And so, um, we work hard together to gain uh, an understanding of these different uh, difficult, even difficult passages with humility, with reference to the church historically, the church currently. The church historically doesn't have the final vote, but it gets a vote. The church currently doesn't have the final vote, but it gets a vote, right? We consult uh, those those topics. So, so much for the difficult things. We could, we could focus on those difficult things and go away probably and whatnot, but we need not to do those things, right? Let's, let's look to the second line. We made it all the way to the second line. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. So what topics are readily accessible to all types of Christians, to all types of people. What are those topics that are right there? You don't have to know the Greek and the Hebrew. You don't have to know the historical backgrounds. You don't have to know the deep stuff. What things are, are the, are the low-hanging fruit of Scripture? Jesus died for our sins. That's right. Jesus that, that's right. So we've got some of those statements. I've got some listed out there, the general topics. So if I could have somebody uh, on this side over here, Open up uh, Psalm 19.7. And if I could have um, somebody on this side over here, open up Psalm 119, verse 130. 
these topics, even the verses that were just quoted here, are on a particular subject, and those are the things that are readily available, right? There's, you don't do a lot of digging to find those things. Can I have someone read uh, Psalm 19, verse 7, please? So you've got two things going on there. Reviving the soul. I think the King James says converting the soul. Right? The idea is giving life to the soul. It's right there. Scripture gives life. That is readily accessible and makes wise the simple. There is wisdom in Scripture that is right there, particularly wisdom in regard to salvation, though the rest of life as well, but particularly making you wise for salvation. Okay? That's something that Scripture readily does all over the place, and it doesn't require any kind of degree or any kind of um, um, that kind of diligent hard work, uh, what, what not. We confirm it by means of all of those things, but it's readily accessible to my six-year-old. Yeah. Psalm 119, verse 130, if someone to read that for us. Red, go ahead. All right, light, right, particularly spiritual light. The God's Word, and we could go on and on. We could talk about the specifics of those things, how Scripture does that. And so when, uh, when your child um, discovers that reading the Bible is, is uh, something that she ought to do and she wants to do it, so she begins to read, she sees right there on the page, without having to dig through it, salvation in Christ. The things readily accessible, how to walk with God, Right? And so even the, the, not only the learned, but the unlearned as well, in the use of ordinary means, reading, thinking, reading all of the Bible, ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them for life, for salvation. That stuff is right there on the surface. There are deeper things, okay? That's the point of uh, this section here. The things that are necessary to be known, believed, and observe for salvation, they are readily available, and there are some difficult things that take more work for us to understand, okay? Uh, but what, a, what an encouragement, what a joy that those, uh, those things available right there uh, for all have to do with life, salvation, walking with God, etc. okay? All right, so that's the point of paragraph seven, is trying to drive that home so that we don't get confused and think uh, that the Bible is a mysterious book, only for uh, the priest or someone else to interpret for us, someone else to, to uh, 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 tell us what it means because I'm just not smart enough to learn it or it's a special mysterious thing and so we need, we need someone to interpret what it means for us. Well, in some ways, it takes a lot of work and not everybody has the same amount of time, but my six-year-old reading his Bible can come to uh, know and understand these basic things about life and godliness. It's readily available, readily accessible. That's, uh, that's the meaning of uh, Augustine's quote there, that Scripture is a pool shallow enough for a child not to drown and yet deep enough for an ele elephant to swim. Right there in that Bible that you have. And so we encourage you, read your Bible. We encourage our kids, read your Bible. We encourage uh, everyone to open the, the Word and read it and not treat it as that mysterious closed book only available to uh, some priest class or something. At the same time, there are some things difficult, and uh, God has given us um, means of uh, working in those difficult areas as well and to arrive at uh, conclusions that we firmly believe and yet hold with humility before God. Um, but we teach those things, we believe those things, but it takes hard work. And God has gifted the church particularly, um, Ephesians 4 talks about this, for that purpose. All right. Any questions on one seven before we move on? I think we can cover one eight in the amount of time we have left. I said it out loud. All right, one eight. Scriptures form and transmission. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations being immediately inspired by God and by His singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic. 
So as in all controversies of religion, the churches finally appeal to them. But because these original languages are not known to all the people of God, who have a right unto and interest in the Scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language, the common language, of every nation unto which they come, that the Word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship Him in an acceptable manner through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, may have hope. Uh, so, long, long section there. But um, I want to walk through it. And, and so this here, this is uh, a Bible. And, and really this, this, so this is an original languages Bible, the Old Testament in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek, part of the Old Testament in Aramaic as well. And what this passage uh, from the confession here is saying is that the Old Testament in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek, are the documents immediately inspired by God. Okay? So technically speaking, what you have in your hand, unless you have this, is just a translation of this. Does that disturb you? This, the original language texts, are the texts that are inspired technically. What you have is a translation of that inspired text. Okay? Now that shouldn't cause us problems. We understand that Paul, when he wrote, wasn't, you know, the, the old joke, the King James, you know, good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me, right? Paul didn't actually write the King James, right? Paul wrote in Greek. Or he had his amanuensis write in Greek. And, and the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, except for those places written in Aramaic. And, and those were the texts that were inspired. Those were the texts that were inspired by God. And what we have in our hand is a translation for us because it's important for us, the people of God, to have the Word of God in our language. And so the work has been done to translate it from these ancient uh, dead languages into our language. And when I went to Russia, I had a, a Bible in Russian. And when I went to Armenia, I had a Bible in Armenian. And when I went to you know, Mexico, you've got a Bible in Spanish. And and so it's translated into the language of the people so they can have access to it, right? But ultimately, and technically speaking, it's this that is the inspired text. So what does that mean for us? It means that we need to do the hard work of getting to what this says. And a good translation, and there are good translations, and there are bad translations, a good translation is giving you access to this because you're probably not going to take the time, most people aren't going to take the time to learn the languages to access this, and that's okay. But a good translation you ought to have, it is like a, like a window into this text. And so um, that's why we use the ESV. A lot of people like the New American Standard. Uh, and then I, I'm, not, I'm not here to run down other translations. The, the Holman um, Standard Bible is a good one as well. Um, there, are, there are excellent translations, and then there's a spectrum <laughs> of less excellent translations, right? Um, and so I, I, I think there are times when it's, you know, it's fine to read the NIV. It's easy to understand, etc. But if you're going to do technical Bible study, it's not the best because it's a little bit removed from the text. The way it's translated it's translating more thought for thought and less word for word. That's why when you read the New American Standard, um, it's, it's a little weird. It's not very good English because they're trying to do word for word. They're trying to get as close access for everybody, you and me, to this as they can. Okay? The ESV does a very similar thing, but I think it's a little bit more polished. But this is not my point to work through those things. But the point I want us to understand and, and that the the uh, confession here is trying to get us to understand is the, the primacy of, the, of this. This is what we're after. And so um, I, I've had conversations with people who um, they, want to, they want to make the, the argument that changes that have been made to the King James Bible are changes to the Bible and are attacks upon Scripture, the authority of Scripture. 
See, that's a miscommunication. That's a misunderstanding, a misidentification, as if this version, whatever the version might be, by the way, this just happened to be uh, King James, that that version is the Bible. And if you edit it in any way, you have edited the Bible. And that is just not true, right? What we're doing, what we're seeking to do is to access this as closely as we can. And if the King James did a good job on, on 80% of this translation, but part of it was inaccurate to this, I'm going to change the King James because this is the Bible. The same with the ESV, the same with the New American Standard, the same with any Bible. We're trying to access this, okay? And so we have a quotation there, uh, Romans 3, 2. Uh, Paul says, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So Old Testament, Paul's writing in the New Testament, early in the New Testament time, and he's reflecting on the oracles of God having been given to the Jews in their own language. That's why it's in Hebrew. So you've got the Old Testament given in Hebrew. The, the, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. It is the original writings. It is what came from Paul's pen or Isaiah's pen that is inspired. And those inspired documents were in Greek and Hebrew, some Aramaic thrown in there. Those are the inspired documents. Our task and the translator's task of the Bible you have in front of you is to get as closely as possible, as close as possible to those original documents, but do so in your language, right? That's why it is okay that every few years there's a new translation in English. On, on one hand, I understand it's that public, you know, pub, publishing houses need to make money so they come up with a new version. I get that. But it's also the fact that language has changed. Even since I became a Christian 30 years ago, language has changed. And so to communicate to my children, to communicate to the people nowadays, might require a different translation than one that was made in the 70s or the 80s. Right? There might be some refinements, some ways where things could be made clearer. Okay, and so uh, we translate, and that's, that's going to be a topic later on, but, but our task is to access what, uh, what the originals said, okay, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. The question, how has God brought His Word to us in the 21st century, right? The statement made in the confession there is, by His singular care and providence, He kept pure in all ages, right? And so what I want to do is... is um, spend just a couple of minutes. I've got 10 minutes left, and if I take five on this topic, it will be adequate, I believe. How did the text get from what Paul wrote to what we read in our language? Or what Isaiah wrote and what we read in our language, right? I'll try and do that very briefly. So particularly for the New Testament, it was a little bit different for the Old Testament. There was such a reverence in the Old Testament for the Hebrew and such great care taken to the transmission from copying Isaiah, for example, making a second copy of Isaiah. They had all these ways to test their parameters, make sure that they were doing it with the right kind of, um, they had, the, you know, they would, they would measure the, the middle letter and they would, you know, the number of letters on the page and the number of words and all this stuff. They had all these ways to check their measurements, to check all the work that they had done so that the copy that they made was as close to a photocopy as they had the capacity to do. And so the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls when they found the great Isaiah scroll, which I don't know exactly when it was written, but probably uh, 200 B.C. Um, and, and, and that's the Isaiah scroll written that early, but Isaiah originally was written in like uh, 8th century B.C., 7th century B.C. That's hundreds of years. You know how much change there was? And you know how much change there is to the, to the Isaiah you have in your Bible? Almost none. They were very, very, very careful. They invented all kinds of ways to make sure of that. So the transmission of the Hebrew is one thing. But here's the, here, here are the critiques about the transmission, uh, transmission of the New Testament Greek. Because when Paul wrote uh, to Romans, for example, writes his letter, sends it to Romans, and it gets there, and they realize this is a letter from Paul. This is Scripture itself. All the churches need this. Right? And so, you know, a visitor might come from Philippi, and he's like, oh, you've got the, the original letter from Paul to, to the Romans. I need a copy of that. And so this guy would sit down, like you at your desk, writing a copy of it. You're not a professional. You're just making a copy because you wanted to take it back to your church, and you didn't have a photocopy machine. Couldn't take a picture with your phone, 
right? You had to copy it down. So the critique by the, by the, the skeptic is, well, you're not a professional. You know, you're, you're going to, you misspell words. Um, you, you, you don't, you're not going to do a very good job because you're not a professional, right? A professional copyist would have these things in mind and these, these ways to do it and whatnot. And so you're just, you know, Joe Schmo from Philippi and you wrote it yourself. And that is as if that were a critique of what you did. But here's the deal. And here's, here's the thing that's, that's uh, um, a little bit counterintuitive. If all right, let's, let's use the example of typing. I'm not a great typist, but I can, I can type better now than when I wrote papers in your class. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> if you're a good typist, right? But let's say you don't get to look at it and just, you know, type right off of the thing you're looking at. But, but you, you look at a paper, you look at something or a book that won't stay open, whatever. You might read a whole line and then you type the whole line. And then you read the next line, type the whole line, right? And so you're doing that. Now, as a terrible typist, I was going R. It took me forever, right? But, but my mistakes by doing that were tiny, tiny mistakes. I forgot a letter in a word. I skipped the word A, right? Those are the kind of mistakes I make. Now, as a good typist, now a really good typist, you don't have this issue, but as my level of fast typing, if I'm typing a whole eight words and I make a mistake, I might blank out whole words, Two, three words, right? Or if I'm typing along and, and I'm, I'm, I'm copying from Ephesians and I remember what's in Colossians, I might type the Colossians part because it's almost the same, but it's not really. See, the mistakes I make are on a whole greater magnitude as a professional than the guy who's doing this and, and just going through. It's going to take him forever. It's going to look terrible and it's going to be very accurate. And the mistakes are going to be tiny, tiny mistakes that are easily recognizable because he, he, he skipped that word or he, he typed this letter instead of that letter in, in, our, in our parlance. You see what I mean? It's counterintuitive. The skeptic will say it, the New Testament was not copied by professionals. Therefore, it's all, it's all questionable. When the fact is, it's more encouraging that it was not copied by professionals because the mistakes they make are so obvious and so tiny that we can look and say, well, that's just a newbie mistake. Clearly, he meant this, right? That's one aspect. There's another aspect. There's another aspect that when, when the copies were dispersed and they were disseminated and spread all over the place, now... What, what's, what's the Mormon argument about the, about the, um, that brings the New Testament into question? Somebody found it and changed it. They, they got to the original document and they changed it, and so they, they removed parts from it, right? Well, the fact is, because those, those documents are spread out hither and yon from early on, there is no possible way that anybody could find absolutely all of those and make the changes. Not even possible. There are just too many uh, copies here and there. Long and the short of it. I've taken, I've taken my five minutes. There's a whole lot more textual criticism and all that kind of stuff, and I love to talk about it. Uh, I've spent a lot of time working on that. And, and the more I work on it, the more I am encouraged that what you have right there in your Bible is, a, is uh, the right text it ought to be. And, by the way, in my New Testament here, where, those, uh, where there might have been any residual question where is it this word or is it that word? By the way, no, doc, no doctrines are at stake, the difference there in anywhere in the New Testament. But the difference is included here so that I have what they've determined is the best reading and what they've determined is not the best reading, but they told me anyway. So that I can look here and say, well, it's still on the page and I can disagree with them. And so my... Uh, confidence in what we have as the New Testament and the Old Testament is what was written. I could talk a whole lot more about this. I won't do so. That's how the Word of God has been brought to us in the 21st century. And I am so encouraged when I work through, uh, I know it's, it's not as immediately encouraging to other people, but, but when I work through text, uh, textual issues, comparing this document with that document, and I think about all those things, I come away extremely encouraged about how God has preserved His Word for us. It is amazing. And so when, when a missionary says to me, yeah, but they, they've removed parts, I'm thinking, 
of, of which of the 5,000 copies uh, or manuscripts or pieces of the New Testament did they remove? Not all of them, I guarantee it. Because they were scattered everywhere. You wouldn't have been able to find them. Because remember Joe Schmo from Philippi, he copied Romans and took it back to, to Philippi. And it got copied and it got sent all around there. And then it got copied. And it's, it's, it's very encouraging, very encouraging. To bring it to a close here, what is our final authority in controversies of religion? What is our final authority in controversies of religion? Um, I'm going to have various, uh, we're going to look up a, a number of different passages. Center row, if you would look up Isaiah 8.20, and if someone else in the center row would look up Acts 15.15, 15, and then uh, somebody on the bench there, look up John 5.39, and uh, let's do somebody over here. Um, Acts 17, 11, please. And you guys are going to look up Colossians 3, 16, please. Isaiah 8, 20, who's got that? How are we to resolve... Questions of religion, controversies of religion, uh, the spiritual topics, uh, what the Bible says. We go to the teaching and to the testimony. We focus on it. We put our nose in the book and we do the work in the book to resolve those questions. Acts 15, 15. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. So in Acts chapter 15, you've got this big question. It's the first big controversy in the church. It has to do with... Uh, the treatment of Gentiles and the inclusion of Gentiles into, uh, into Christianity. And what all does that mean? And do they need to undergo circumcision? And these other, it's a big, big question. And how do they resolve it? How to, I mean, Paul is there. Peter is there. These are the, the people who are writing the books <laughs> that you have in your New Testament. They are gathered there. And how do they resolve the question? The words of the prophets agree. They themselves go to the Scripture to see what the Scripture teaches. John 5, 39. So he, he was, on one hand, he was, he was commending the Pharisees, the scribes, those he was talking with who, who were, they searched the Scriptures because they thought there was eternal life. He's saying, yeah, you're right, but you missed me. They bear witness about me. Right? So he wasn't saying, you need to stop looking at the Bible and just believe in Jesus. We don't, we don't have any idea who Jesus is unless we believe the Bible. Unless we go to see what the Bible says. Right? The, the solution is to stick your nose in the book and, by the way, there you will find Jesus. I think there's also a tip on a, uh, for us for hermeneutics. You can hear that in the way I preach, that there is Christ. It is those, even the Old Testament scriptures, that bear witness about Jesus. That's why we preach the way we do. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. All right, so there you have the Bereans who are more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica because when they heard Paul's teaching, by the way, they didn't have a Bible at their house that they went to. They probably went to the local synagogue. And they corporately sat around and said, now Paul said this, is that really there? And the rabbi would flip and he would, he would read. It was done together. It wasn't done in the prayer closet, but it was done together and it was an appeal to God's word. And most specifically, the church is to appeal to the original languages. The final, final um, witness is right here. And so we appeal to this, right? But um, Bible translation is, has been important to the church nearly through all the ages, and when it has not, it has been to the detriment of the entire church. Could I have someone read Colossians 3.16? So the Word of God, they are to let it dwell in them richly. What a blessing for us to have the Word of God. It would not be a blessing if I handed you this and took away your English Bible. And so we translate it into our language. And, and that has always been the course, uh, the desire of the church 
Um, almost always. You have a, I think you have 1 Corinthians 14, 6, 9, 11, 12, 24, 20. That whole conversation there, that's about tongues. The point being, uh, tongues are of no use to someone who doesn't understand them. Just like a Bible right here, I could hand this to you and it would do you no benefit. It does you benefit when it's in your language, when you can understand it. That is the Word of God uh, brought to us. And praise God for it. Praise God for His providential work throughout history that we have God's Word in our hand, that we are encouraged ourselves, that we are built up, that we can understand and think about these hard questions, recognize those that are, that are more readily accessible, and encourage one another in those ways. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word, that You were not obligated to give to us, yet You gave it to us. And You have protected it and preserved it throughout the centuries so that what we have in our hand, we can be very confident of. And in there, Your Word, You teach us truth about you. You teach us truth about us and how we can know you. You talk about things that are uh, low-hanging fruit, but that we would never know apart from your word. And you talk about deep things that we will uh, swim the rest of our lives. We are grateful that you have given us your precious word and you have given, uh, uh, gifted those in the church to translate it into our own language that we can benefit from it. What a joy and blessing, and we thank you for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.